You are listening to Gone But Never Forgotten. Our topics can include, but are not limited to, murder, sexual assault, graphic and gruesome details, and more. These topics are adult in nature and are not meant for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. In 1992, one of the worst mass murders in Canadian history took place in Yellowknife, the capital of Northwest Territories in Canada. In the midst of what was already a violent clash between management and workers, a lockout and a strike, nine men who were working as replacement workers died when their rail car hit a bomb. The end result was that a man would confess and then take back his confession. The bomb was deliberately planted and nine men lost their lives as a direct result. Welcome to episode 41 of Gone But Never Forgotten, The Giant Mine Murders. Welcome back to GBNF. First off, we hope that each and every one of you out there is doing well and being better. Things have been busy around here as usual. It's summer as we record this and that's always a busy season for us. We always seem to be on the move in the summer months and this year has certainly been no different. A lot of camping, a lot of day trips, and of course, as mentioned before, we're headed to Northern Ontario very soon. We can't wait. We wanted to take a moment to thank our patrons again, both of whom are ongoing and longtime supporters of the podcast. Thank you, Michelle and Stacy, for having our back and helping us navigate this thing as we try to grow and grow big. Yep, and remember that you can help us out immensely by either purchasing show merch from our merch store, signing up as a patron with us on Patreon, or we also have the ability through PayPal to do one-time donations. That is through the show email, gbnfpod at gmail.com. We had an amazing one-time donation recently from an anonymous donor, but we will just say thank you. You know who you are. This week's show is something that is a little bit different for us. But in so many ways, the same. We are going to tell you the story of one of Canada's worst mass murders and the story behind the story. Yellowknife is the capital city of the Northwest Territories, one of three recognized territories within Canada. The city was quite literally built upon gold and precious metals. The site of what would come to be known as Giant Mine would be discovered to hold a lot of gold all the way back in 1935 when a man named Johnny Baker discovered the gold and also staked mineral claims in the area. 
The massive amount of gold that was within Giant Mine, though, was not even known until 1944 when a massive area was uncovered and discovered to be ripe with gold. The area was beneath Baker Creek Valley. The discovery of the massive amount of gold would lead to a massive staking boom in Yellowknife after World War II ended. Giant Mine would start producing gold in 1948 and continued to be in service until 2004. Over that time, Giant Mine actually produced over 220,000 kilograms of gold. The mine would have many owners over the years, including Falcon Bridge from 1948 until 1986 through Giant Yellowknife Mines Limited. Pamur of Australia from 1986 to 1990, also through Giant Yellowknife Mines Limited, and Royal Oak Mines from 1990 to 1999. Once Royal Oak went bankrupt in 1999, the mine was taken in by the Department of Indian Affairs and Northern Development, and they took responsibility for cleaning up the mine site. The time period that we're going to talk about today happened not long after Great Mine was taken over by Royal Oak Mines, Inc. Royal Oak was a company that was co-founded and led by a woman named Peggy Witt, who was very well known for her union-busting style and very well known in the mining community. She was so well known that in 1991, she was named by Northern Miner, a Canadian trade journal, as Mining Man of the Year because she had built Royal Oak up from the ground to being Canada's sixth largest gold producer. It's kind of crazy when I looked this up and I was reading it. Like, what a different time. Peggy did literally get recognized for her work, but she won an award that was called Man of the Year. They didn't even change it. With all of the bad things that are going on in the world around us, I'm certainly happy that at least on some levels... There's a little more equality in the world than this, at least. Not to say that there is equality, but at least in some ways we're trending in the right direction. But I won't get political, don't worry. 1992 brought tough times, though. Royal Oak declared that Giant Mine had become unprofitable. They believed that the riches ore had already been removed, and that combined with the fact that gold prices had taken a deep dive to almost 50% of the levels from 1980, caused a lot of problems for the company. In response to the changing conditions, Royal Oak made tough decisions in order to, in their words, return the mine to profitability. Unfortunately, as most of us know, when a company decides that it needs to tighten the purse strings, so to speak, the first people that feel that crunch are the employees. Perks were cut for the unionized miners, Workplace discipline was ramped up to ensure a tighter workplace, and in negotiations with the union, management demanded that the union agree to a 6% wage cut across the board. As you can imagine, the union, Local 4 of the Canadian Association of Smelter and Allied Workers, or CASAW, was a small union that was very suspicious of Royal Oak, and especially suspicious of their female CEO. There's that sexism thing again. A large part of their propaganda against the company was actually aimed at the fact that a woman was at the lead of the company, and as such, 
because she was female, she didn't know what she was doing, essentially. Absolutely awful. And the sad thing is that this kind of thing takes place a lot. It's awful. There is no getting around that fact. Even though the relationship between Royal Oak and CASAW were very bad, they actually managed to negotiate a new contract in April of 1992. Part of the contract was a provision that the employees' wages would be tied to the fluctuations of the price of gold in the market. Obviously, that meant that if the price of gold continued to go down, so would the wages of the employees. The union obviously saw the market and how much the market had plummeted, and as such, they hoped that the price of gold would only go up from where it was. And that would mean that the wages of their employees would actually have nowhere to go but up as well in the future. The bargaining committee for the union recommended that they accept and ratify their new contract. But much to the chagrin of the union, the membership actually voted overwhelmingly against the negotiated contract. And thus they voted for a strike instead. Unfortunately, as can be the case, especially back in the 1990s, the labor dispute would be messy and ugly from the very beginning. The union and the workers planned to go on strike on the 23rd of May, but the company jumped the gun on that and locked out all members of the CASAW union on May 22nd, and even took the steps to keep the mine running by bringing in replacement workers. What is interesting to note is that the tactic of bringing in replacement workers was actually illegal in many provinces of Canada at the time and had not been done at a Canadian mine for more than 50 years. In the Northwest Territories, however, this was not illegal and because the territory didn't have its own laws, the default was for federal labor laws to govern in that area, and under those laws, replacement workers were allowed to be hired. As we said, things got incredibly ugly. Union members, of course, set up picket lines at the entrances to the mine site, and their signs included signs that called Peggy, Miss Piggy, and other signs that insulted and called out all nine of the Royal Oak managers. In response to the picket lines, Royal Oak actually did bring in workers from all across Canada and would even use helicopters to airlift the replacement workers over the picket lines, over the striking workers, and straight to the mine. That seems like an elaborate setup, I'm sure. However, if you're unfamiliar with picket lines and crossing them, this can be an incredibly difficult thing to do, and people have been met with violence, or worse, for attempting to cross the lines of striking workers. And there was no back and forth here. The replacement workers were actually fed and given temporary homes on the site of the mine so that crossing the picket line was not a daily thing. The striking workers could not believe the expenses that Royal Oak was going to in order to keep the mine running. After they'd been crying poor and causing all of this discourse from the very beginning. Insults would be yelled and screamed at the replacement workers at every chance. And the striking workers actually would blow air horns at night in an attempt to prevent the replacement workers from sleeping. And things got violent. On the very first night of the strike, members of the union threw rocks at buildings that were part of the mine. A security guard was assaulted... 
A shack on the property was burnt down to the ground, and the striking workers also knocked down an electrical power line that brought electricity to the mine. As tensions and crimes escalated, Royal Oak was forced to hire security guards in an attempt to prevent more assault, arson, or worse. The problem, though, was that the security guards took it upon themselves to try to intimidate the strikers, which just caused the situation to escalate even more. So, the next step in the rising tensions was for the RCMP to bring in a riot squad from Edmonton to try and defuse and control the situation. In response to that move, in June, a large number of strikers wearing balaclavas would gain access to the property and they would break windows, cause damage, and assault many of the security guards. Police would fire a few warning shots and the situation was thankfully brought under control. Royal Oak would then fire 38 of the striking miners who they said were part of the riot. Wow, this thing was certainly a powder keg, wasn't it? It just seems like a massive game of chess, but one where lives, property, and money were all on the line with every single move. It seems that literally everything that happened would lead to the other side reacting in a more grandiose way. To use the old expression, it seems that the freight train was fixing to run off the tracks in this situation. I think that one of the real problems here was the fact that the Canadian government actually did have a way that they could try to force the entire situation to come to an end. It's something that we often hear about even today when there's workers and unions on strike. They could have forced arbitration on both sides and an end to the strike and lockout itself. Unfortunately, even as the government in the Northwest Territories petitioned for the Canadian government to do just that, it didn't happen. The Canadian government refused to get involved in what they called a private dispute between the union and Royal Oak. Unreal. But like you said, even today, we see that call from the public or governments for arbitration to be brought in, but rarely do we see it happen. So, as you can guess, things just continued to spiral in this situation with no end in sight. There was even a small group of the striking workers who had banded together and radicalized. They called themselves the Cambodian Cowboys. This group of men would break into the mine many times. They spray-painted threatening messages and even exploded a couple of bombs on the property. The first of which was set off on the mine's satellite dish, and the second was set off inside of the compressed air building that provided the ventilation to the tunnels inside the mine. This was a very threatening signal from the striking workers, and the Cambodian cowboys specifically, who wanted management to know that they had the ability to shut the entire mine down if they wanted to. They had the means and the know-how to cause chaos or even worse. Things just continued to drag on, and in Yellowknife, people were at odds over this dispute. Even the general public would have arguments for one side or the other. One thing was for sure, everyone had an opinion, and it was big news in the city. Because things were dragging on for so long, some workers had to turn their back on the strike and cross the picket lines themselves and go back to work. 
Newspapers were filled with articles and opinion pieces, but it was believed that someone was going to get killed if something didn't happen in the months-long dispute. Unfortunately, those sentiments were in fact correct. At 8.45 a.m. on September 18, 1992, almost four months after the labor dispute had started, things came to a violent and horrific head. A man car that was carrying nine miners along the 750-foot level of the mine triggered a bomb that was set right beside the rail line. This caused a massive explosion that sent shockwaves throughout the entire mine, and all nine men that were in the cart were instantly killed. Their remains would be spread across the entire tunnel in what can only be described as a horrific scene. Six of the men that were dead were CASAW members who had come across the picket line. Chris Neal was 29, Joe Pandev was 55, Norm Hurry was 53, David Vodnoski was 25, Shane Riggs was 27, and Vern Fulauka was 36. The other three deceased were replacement workers. Robert Rousel, who was 37, Malcolm Soller was 38, and Arnold Russell was 41. As news of the explosion and deaths reached the picket lines and the community at large, all hell broke loose. There were fights in the street, members of the union were accused of murder and were threatened. Union members, though, took the stance that the explosion was in fact likely an accident and that it was not caused intentionally. They said that the explosion must have happened because of the lackadaisical safety practices of Royal Oak. That would, however, be proven to be wrong pretty quickly. I mean, unless part of Royal Oak's safety practices was to place bombs like that in the mine. The RCMP would find a blasting cap and other equipment that was used to make the bomb at the scene of the crime. These were not items that were used in the making of routine mining explosives. A murder investigation was subsequently opened and interviews began. Interviews that would be long, painful, and not entirely helpful. Hundreds of miners, the managers of Royal Oak, and the replacement workers would all be interviewed. While all of that was happening, one week after the murder, the mine would again be reopened. Royal Oak, now believing wholeheartedly that this was malicious and was indeed murder, made a proclamation that they would not negotiate further until the murder was solved and the person, or people, responsible were brought to justice. This was one of the longest and busiest investigations in the history of the RCMP. More than 300 officers were involved and the investigation took 13 months. There were different suspects, Al Shearing and Tim Betcher, for instance, who were two of the Cambodian cowboys who were responsible for the smaller explosions. Initially, for obvious reasons, they were the prime suspects in the case. That would be the obvious and easiest answer from the outset for sure. They had planted bombs and caused explosions before, so that was an easy leap, certainly. There was very little evidence that was discovered in the case that would help the investigation to narrow down on suspects. One of the few things that they had was a set of footprints that led from the abandoned mineshaft to the site of the explosion. 
and that was the route that investigators believed the killer had taken. The footprints were made by size 11 Chemex. Chemex are an Eskimo style of footwear that are made from seal skin. Armed with that piece of information, police were able to narrow their search. On the night before the explosion, there were not an excessive amount of picketers on the line. One of the men that was, was Roger Warren. He owned a pair of size 11 Chemex. When police looked at the boots, they realized that the soles of the boots had been defaced. They believed that that was done to make them look different than the tracks that were left inside the mine. Roger was 49 and he was married with two daughters. He had been a miner for a long time and even had the nickname of Ace at the mine because he had an impeccable skill when it came to blasting and breaking rock. He wasn't actually believed by most of the investigators early on to have been the suspect. However, it was believed that because of his skill set, he likely had information that could help them find out who had done the deed. One man, though, Sergeant Greg McMurrin, who was an interrogation expert with the RCMP, believed that Warren was guilty of the crime and arranged to have a lengthy interrogation with him in October of 1993, over a year after the explosion. During the interview, Warren would start out by expressing his absolute disgust that it was legal for Royal Oak to hire replacement workers, scabs as they were called in slang. He would then confess to setting the bomb that ultimately killed the nine men in the mine. He would even take investigators into the mine and show them how he had set the bomb. He had set up sticks of explosives and connected a tripwire to them so that a passing rail car would set off the explosion. He said that it was never his intention to kill anyone. He just wanted to scare the scabs and embarrass Royal Oak management. Obviously, Roger was arrested. That November, as Roger was awaiting trial, the Canadian Labor Relations Board held hearings in Yellowknife and they finally decided to order an end to the strike and lockout. They certainly stepped in far too late. As seems to be the case in much of human history, things are often reactionary instead of preventative. Something awful needs to happen before steps get taken. This seems to be most prevalent in the political realm, that's for sure. What is crazy is that 18 months after the strike and lockout began, 96% of the workers would vote to accept a new contract offer. The contract offer that was 18 months in the making was essentially the exact same contract that was rejected to start the entire mess. Royal Oak would lay off about one-third of their replacement workers, and in December of 1993, 130 striking workers returned to work. The two men that were mentioned, Al Shearing and Tim Betcher, were not among the men returning to work. They were arrested and convicted for their roles in breaking into the site of the mine and setting those smaller bombs in 1992. Shearing would be sentenced to two and a half years in prison, and Betcher was sentenced to three years in prison. As for Roger Warren, his trial started in September of 1994, almost one year after his confession, and the court was filled with widows and family members from the murdered miners. During the trial, Roger would shock absolutely everyone when he recanted his confession to setting the bomb. 
He said that he was depressed at the time that he was interrogated, and he said that he felt that his confession was coerced out of him. You have to wonder where these people get their amazing ideas to try and flip on their confessions. We've certainly seen this kind of stunt before. This guy took investigators down into the mine and told them exactly what he had done. Uh, playing devil's advocate, though, he likely could have said that he was covering for someone else and that he knew because he had advised them what to do, but not been a part of the physical act himself. I suppose that's true, but by then you would be looking at accessory to murder and certainly new charges. So the result would likely be bleak either way. It was pretty clear that he knew what had happened because he was there. Well, like you said, the jury was shown video footage of Roger taking the investigators into the mind and showing them in great detail how the explosive had been set. The trial would last for four months, but Roger was convicted of second-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. Also in 1994, the Northwest Territories Workers' Compensation Board would file a civil lawsuit against many parties on behalf of the murder victims. Named in the lawsuit were the CASAW Union, the Government of the Northwest Territories, and Royal Oak Mines. A judgment in the case would rule that the charged parties were on the hook for a $10.7 million settlement. That process took 10 years as it was finally made in 2004. However, four years after that, in 2008, the judgment was overturned because it was deemed that none of the parties that were sued were actually responsible for the murders or for Roger Warren's actions. In 1997, Roger appealed his criminal case, but the conviction would be upheld. For nearly 10 years, Roger would claim and maintain his innocence from prison. But in 2003, Roger would again confess to the crime and say that the reason that he recanted his confession at trial was because he didn't want his wife and daughters to believe that he did such a horrible and stupid thing. In 2014, after serving 18 years in prison, and despite the families of the victims fighting against it, Roger was granted day parole. After three years of day parole, at the age of 72, Roger was granted full parole in 2017. He was deemed to be a manageable risk by the Parole Board of Canada. He had two provisions to his parole. He was not allowed to possess or drink alcohol, and he was not to have any contact with family members of his victims without the permission being granted by his parole supervisor. Roger would pass away at the age of 75 in Abbotsford, British Columbia on July 24th, 2019. What a story. It really is a wild one. Obviously not considered to be a serial killer, but Roger Warren served his time for nine counts of murder. If everything that he said was true, this was certainly one of those quote-unquote mistakes that cost him and his family a lot. Certainly then, as now, a lot of people were and are driven by anger and frustration and just want to make a point. And this certainly was one of those cases where what seemed like an innocent statement being made cost nine people their lives and certainly seems, as Roger said himself, stupid. Absolutely senseless. 
Yeah, this one's crazy. I mean, I used to work a union job. I was lucky enough that we didn't go on strike, but I kind of know how these things tend to be. You know, there's a lot of violence. There's a lot of criminal activity. There's a lot of things that are said and done when you're looking at strikes and picket lines. And obviously here, things just like this is unheard of. I mean, this was a strike for over a year. Crazy stuff. So it's not surprising that things just continued to escalate. Definitely. And I think the longer it went, the more frustrated that people were getting and, and maybe not even thinking that there was a light at the end of the tunnel. Like maybe we will get what we need. Maybe, you know, I think the longer it went on, it was just everyone was feeling more and more hopeless. Well, and like stubborn, right? I mean, yeah. like like we said, essentially they ended up taking the same contract almost that they turned down in mass numbers, mm-hmm. you know, when this all started. It's crazy, you know? It's like they were just like all of a sudden it was just... You know, like, these people just needed to go back to work. But, yeah. And, I mean, as someone, like I said, I worked with a union, and there's a lot of us that were unionized that hated the union. You know, I hate to say that in Canada. I'm going to catch flack from some of my listeners. But, honestly, it was just, it's just, you know, to be fair, I'm working in a non-union job now, and, like, my rate, my raises year over year are better than they were with a union. Things are just better. So, I yeah. mean, I'm I mean, not... to get back on point, like, I don't think the union is necessarily at fault for this because just because things are going wrong with unions doesn't mean you go and make a bomb to make a point. You know what I mean? So, like, as much as I agree and disagree with union stuff, I think at the end of the day, you know, like, this person could have made a statement in a different way. Oh, absolutely. I mean, certainly, I guess Roger just wanted to set this bomb off so that he could show that they gained access to the mine. I certainly don't think he meant to kill nine people. No, and I don't think he meant to kill anyone either, and I do sincerely believe that. But I think he just got to the point where he was just, he felt hopeless. And when you're talking about, you know, people's livelihood and their way of life and like now that's not happening like it's not just the job that they're losing they're losing their lifestyle they're losing the support they have for like for him his kids his wife you know so um you know and in some ways i think we all feel a little bit like roger you know like we're all a little bit frustrated with like the government and working and da 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 but uh, at the same time we have to like realize you can't just do senseless things because innocent people get hurt you know, like those those nine men that were murdered, they were just like Roger. They were just working, trying to make a dollar like the rest of us are. You yeah, know? These, these were men that literally, you know, had decided to stop striking to go back to work to support their families. And yeah. these were men that came from other parts of Canada to work when the wages were offered. You know, like I read interviews with people that did go and work as scabs or replacement workers whatever you want to call them and they said like when you're offering that much money you'd be crazy to say no yeah well and mining is not an easy job no you know like this isn't just something you're like oh they're hiring i need to i need to like a dollar no you you work so hard and uh it's it's not it's not easy so i feel bad for everybody in this situation um and you know hopefully something like this will never happen again and like this will be Sadly, like you said, an after the fact wake up call that things had to change, you know, for um, everybody because the workers are not um, indispensable, you know, so 
I just feel terrible for everybody. I feel terrible for Roger, but I feel especially terrible for the nine men who literally did nothing. They were just innocent bystanders, you know. It was just wrong place, wrong time for them. Yep. So, yeah. I think that's pretty much all you can really say about that. I did want to bring up something that you brought up, um, just to kind of discuss it. Because, like, I mean, I don't even know the ins and outs of the legal system. Okay. But one of the things that you said to me was, like, you couldn't understand how this guy got 18 years for this. And then there's other people that get, like, five years or whatever. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. (laughs) Yeah, I wanted to touch on that quickly. I mean, this is certainly a different set of circumstances. Not to say that these nine men, their lives were worth anything more or less than others. Um, But this, when you really break it down, he got two years of time for each murder, which is really not a lot at all. That's nothing, yeah. Yeah, like, I think when I said that to you, when you brought it up, you were kind of like, oh, well, that kind of puts it in perspective. Yeah. Yeah. But again, like, at the same time, this wasn't a serial killer. I mean, I think that there was some leniency in terms of time that he was to serve because it was, as it appears, it was an accident. But you still have to do your time for the crime. Like, nine people didn't die and you're just going to get a slap on the wrist. Well, and not only that, like, those nine people didn't get 18 years. You know, they, like, they were young and they lost the rest of their life. And that was it. Like, they, there's no, okay, that was in the past now. You know what I mean? I mean, sadly, and in some way, thankfully, like, Roger passed away. So he technically did, you know, do his time until he was gone. But... It, it would be so hard as the family member of any of those nine people to to just hear 18 years after yeah. you lost, like, a very crucial and important member of your family. Yeah. Well, and like, like we said earlier in, in the episode, I mean, the families were not happy that Roger was given day parole and then full parole, you know? Mm-hmm. And, like, yeah. how could you be? I mean, the reality is even if you believe in forgiving someone for what was probably a mistake, like... Can you can you move past it? Can you are you okay with potentially passing that person in the street who literally caused the death of your husband or your dad? No, you can't. Yeah, I know. So it's it's terrible. Well, it's terrible because the whole family of the people that passed away are affected and then of course like Roger himself, his family also did nothing. Like they're not bad people, you know, well we assume they're not bad people. Um and he was just trying to be a good person. Uh it just it seems like in this situation, there wasn't really anyone who was bad. It was just that there was someone who made bad decisions. And um, it's just sad. Like, I don't know. I don't know how to feel about this one. Like, am I angry at Roger? Am I angry at the union? Like, am I... Do I feel bad for Roger? Like, do I not feel... Like, I don't know. This one's really confusing. But um, I did like it in a way because I think we can all relate to a situation similar to this in some way. Like, you know, you're not getting recognition at work or something along those lines. I think we can relate to uh, the underlying story, I guess oh, I'll say. And I think that each and every one of us has or has thought about lashing out at the system or our boss or something yeah. in our lifetime. I mean, like, not with a bomb, but... Oh, um, that's just... Is that just know. a me thing? Oh, <laughs> yeah, my bad. So. No, certainly not. We're not, you know... That's not something that you think about. But no. in this situation... You know, maybe a propos, you know, not the way that things were done, certainly, but... Yeah, it's true, but um, I guess we'll just wrap it up there, because uh, we could go on forever about this one, like, for sure. Um, I just want to say thank you for everyone for listening today. Uh, let us know what you think about this one, uh, and we'll see you next week. Lance? 
That's all I've got. Enjoy your summer if you're listening in real time. Enjoy whatever season you're in if you're listening in the future because we don't want to mention specifics. And um, I mean, the key thing here, and we kind of touched on it with Roger, like trying to lash out and stuff. Like, this is one of those things that I feel like is perfect for hashtag be better. You know, when we get angry, when we get depressed, when we get down, when we're backed up against the wall, there's lots of ways to react to things. And like this anger and building a bomb and lashing out in this way, that's a bit of an overreach. So let's try to be better and deal with our stuff and hopefully not see any other situations like this ever. So we'll see you guys next time on Gone But Never Forgotten.